Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. Something extraordinary, in the very literal sense of the term, took place at the United Nations this week. For 20 hours, over three days, each candidate in the race to become the next UN Secretary General submitted themselves to questioning by member states and civil society. This was a radical departure from how things were done previously. For the past 70 years, the Secretary General was picked pretty much behind closed doors by the five veto-wielding members of the Security Council. It was a totally untransparent process. Sometimes you didn't even know who was in the running. And in the end, the Security Council picked one person, always incidentally a man, and the General Assembly, that is the entire rest of the UN membership, would rubber stamp that decision. Now, the Security Council still has its veto, but this time around, that's not quite how things are going down. For one, there are actually declared candidates, nine so far, and each of the candidates faced two hours of questioning by member states, forcing them to go on the record on some hot-button global issues. And it was all webcast, and I watched nearly all of it, and I would be lying to you if I said that the whole thing was totally riveting all the time, uh, around hour 16 or so, it sort of got tedious. But for UN nerds like myself and my guest Richard Gowan, the novelty of it all offered some deep insights into the inner workings of the United Nations, what individual countries prioritize in deciding who to back for the Secretary General, and it offered a glimpse into the diplomatic acumen of the candidates in the hot seat. So because these hearings were new and different and genuinely exciting for you and watchers like Richard and I, I taped our conversation in two parts. First, we spoke before the hearings even began about our expectations for this event and discussed the sort of things that we'd be looking out for. Then on Thursday afternoon, just as the hearings were wrapping up, we spoke again about some of the highlights from the week and any tea leaves that could be read into both the questions that the member states asked and the answers that were given. So even if you're not a dyed-in-the-wool UN nerd like myself and Richard, I think you'll find this conversation really interesting. It does offer some insights into how the UN works and to how international relation works more broadly. As always, go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to check out our archive, subscribe on iTunes, get the app. If you want, the uh, easiest way to listen to the podcast is probably just to download the app and every episode is right at your fingertips. Meanwhile, you can also check out my conversation with Danilo Turk, who is one of the declared candidates who is in the hot seat this week. He is the first of a series of interviews I'm conducting with the declared UN Secretary General candidates. And now here is my conversation with Richard Gowan, who is a fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations and also with the Center on International Cooperation, where he was previously research director. He's also a columnist for World Politics Review. Let's talk UN. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. 
I think there are quite a few predictable topics on the agenda. I suspect that every candidate is going to be asked how they will push forward the sustainable development goals and push forward the Paris Climate Agreement. And diplomats in New York are especially interested in the implementation of the sustainable development goals because ambassadors who were here last year who negotiated the goals really feel that that was their collective achievement and they want to see the next Secretary General, you know, carry that achievement forward. The case of talking about climate change is obvious. What I think will be trickier and where we may see some interesting moments is questions about the state of peace operations or questions about issues like the crisis in Syria. And the Syrian issue, if it comes up, is going to be especially sensitive because the the candidates will need to find a way of talking about the crisis that doesn't offend the U.S. or the Russians. Mm -hmm. And that will be awfully hard. So, I mean, that'll be the interesting thing. Like, at one uh, on the one hand, they have to somehow have uh, as broad an appeal as possible. But when it comes to answering questions about peace and security issues, say like Ukraine or, or, or Syria, they just have to be sure not to cross the any members of the permanent five. That's correct. And because most of the candidates, six of the current eight, come from Eastern Europe, they're especially sensitive to questions about Ukraine, as you say, and and Russia's intentions. It's very clear that Moscow is watching this this process of selecting a secretary general especially closely. The Russians have sometimes felt that Ban Ki-moon was too close to the U.S., they were probably right about that. And they really want a replacement who will toe Moscow's line. But, you know, Russia's position on Syria, Russia's position on Ukraine have not made it popular at the UN. So the Eastern European candidates mustn't look as if they're they're kowtowing to President Putin too much either. So that's interesting. So you think the two non-Eastern Europeans, that's Helen Clark and Antonio Gutierrez from New Zealand and, and Portugal, respectively, are potentially at a disadvantage for the fact that they don't have as keen an ear to Russian sensitivities and sensibilities? I think it's a problem. And I think that uh, the Russian ambassador to the UN, Vitaly Cherkin, has, has said in clear terms that he wants an Eastern European candidate. In fairness, there are, there are signs that the US in particular is uncomfortable with candidates who might be too close to Moscow and really do want to open the race up to uh, people from other regions like Clark, Guterres. And then there are some people who won't be there next week, but we know are still in the race. Kevin Rudd, the former Australian Prime Minister, is one. Uh, Susanna Malcora, the Argentinian Foreign Minister, who was a a senior member of Ban Ki-moon's team until recently, was another. And so there are quite a lot of non-Eastern European candidates in the mix. And whether they're in New York next week or whether they're holding back to jump into the race later, uh, they will be trying to work out how to navigate between the US and Russia too. So I guess what's interesting here is that there really isn't a way to divine who might be a front runner because ultimately, I mean, yeah, there are some better well-known candidates like Helen Clark and Guterres and Bakova are, are better known uh, in, uh, among like diplomats and, and UN watchers than the others. But being better known doesn't necessarily mean you uh, will 
uh, you know, be the one who emerges as secretary general or, or have a leg up in the process of being secretary general, because ultimately, I mean, it comes down to those five permanent members. Uh, and so, you know, this is, this, this theater is, is going to be interesting. It's going to be fascinating for UN watchers. And it's going to, I think, add a degree of transparency to what has been a totally untransparent process. But unlike say, you know, the horse race, um, punditry of, uh, us political elections that there really isn't any one person that you could say, okay, they are the one, uh, whose race it is for them to lose. Well, I, I don't know if Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush listen to this podcast. But <laughs> if they do, they'll be laughing in a hollow fashion um, when you say that. There have been a couple of semi-front runners in the race to date. I think that uh, Helen Clark was known to be a candidate from very early on, and you know because she's a, a solid international name. She was someone who was talked about a lot um, uh, early in the race. Uh, currently, it's probably Irina Bukova um, from Bulgaria, the uh, the chief of UNESCO, who has picked up quite a lot of attention. In, in part, actually, for something that you and I talked about in a, in a previous podcast, which was she ended up in quite a big fight with another Bulgarian candidate, um, Kristalina Georgieva, uh, to, to get the nomination. So... Certain people float up, certain people have more public attention, but it, it is very malleable. And, you know, I mentioned Kevin Rudd. Uh, Rudd is a higher level political figure than all of those who are currently declared globally. Um, and if he does enter the races, we still expect him to. I think he might, for a time, suddenly look like the front runner. Uh, he has the problem that he is a man, and there is still quite a broad feeling amongst UN members that they would like this to be uh, a woman, um, although everyone is, is aware that even that may may not prove uh, to be the ultimate result. So it's, it's, not like, it's not like an election. As diplomats keep on pointing out, it's a selection. And I, I think that you're right. I think that this process has produced a surprising amount of transparency and is actually going to get a good deal of media interest next week. And that can only be healthy. Uh, I, I don't think that many diplomats actually believed it would get this transparent um, at the, this far. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's a selection and diplomatic realities will reassert themselves when the Security Council starts holding straw polls on who who should uh, be the, the FG. And I, I think that that part begins in July. Uh, well, Richard, we'll touch base again after the uh, the hearings commence. Yeah, there should be a drinking game. Uh, I think every time someone mentions the SDGs, uh, one should have a shot of a, be, a UN a I'll UN be, approved alcohol. I'll be passed out before noon on Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, you may do that anyway. Um, Give us some of the diplomatic chat, but uh, it'll be worth watching. All right, thank you, Richard. And now here we are, about three days and 18 hours into this marathon. Basically, each candidate sat down for about two hours of questioning. They gave a 10-minute opening statement, uh, and then the questions came in. And he took questions from groups of states first. 
Uh, and then, as time allowed, took questions from civil society and also individual member states. But the groups of states were given priority. Uh, and the questions always kind of went in the same order. It always went the G77 plus China, which is a group of the developing world plus China, then the non-aligned movement, the NAM, as they're called, which surprisingly still exists and is still quite a potent force in the General Assembly, which also includes many members of the G77. There's a lot of overlap, I think, between the two. Um, and then the European Union and the African Union got a question. And for the most part, the questions were the same. And, and the G77 and the NAM, the non-aligned movement, always kicked off with the same question, which is really telling and really interesting as to what their priorities were. And the question basically boiled down to, what will you do as Secretary General to ensure that more people from the developing world are given high-level appointments within the UN system? Which I think was a pretty fascinating insight into what they perceive as to be, one, within the scope of the role of the Secretary General, but two, what is like their top priority? I, th I, th I think that's right. And it meant that Every candidate had to uh, talk about their managerial um, uh, their managerial skills um, and promise to to run a more diverse UN. Uh, that was then offset, though, by the fact that all the candidates, and especially the male candidates, had to address gender issues. Yes, and I think that uh, what is very striking is that a number of the male candidates, um, such as uh, Antonio Guterres from Portugal and um, Vuk Jeremic from Serbia um, made pretty concrete um, pledges to ensure gender parity uh, amongst their top staff. Mm -hmm. and, and even so, Igor Luksic, the first guy to go, said that he would appoint a female deputy secretary general from the developing world. And I, I, I and Jeremic then said something similar too. So clearly, gen gender issues um, have permeated. Uh, the discussions with male candidates, um, in a sense, having to prove that they are even more feminist than um, than the female candidates. And, and I should say earlier, so so these you know countries group themselves together uh, to ask questions jointly, and there is one group specifically created for this uh, process. I think called like the group of countries committed to a female secretary general candidate, uh, which is a group of 56 member states that always put that question to the male um, and also the the, the female um, candidates as well. What will you do to ensure gender parity? And it was always kind of like an awkward moment when they asked that question to, to a man. And I think, I think that some observers have um, felt that while those are, you know, those are important issues and clearly, the question of gender is absolutely at the center of this race that um maybe the questions of internal management and internal appointments were getting too much attention and distracting um uh the candidates from the un's uh you know the un's external activities in fields such as peacekeeping that said um the us uh, consistently pressed um candidates to say how they they would strengthen UN peace operations. Although there were some pretty good questions all the way through. I, I have to admit that I was a little surprised. I, I'd expected the the entire process to be so fuzzy and vague that we would know almost nothing more about the candidates than we did at the start of the week. And the candidates' um, vision statements, which they'd laid out before the, the hearings, were indeed extremely uh, gaseous um but when when they got into the chamber um the diplomats 
did ask more testing questions, and at least in some cases, uh, the candidates um, responded, um, you know, pretty well, demonstrating their, uh, their their political skills. And I don't think one could say that any single candidate nailed it. Uh, equally, I don't think one could say that any any single candidate flopped. I, um, yeah. I totally all, agree there. I say that there there were no like obvious gaffes or flubs and. You know, part of this exercise, I think, was to demonstrate the effectiveness of these candidates as communicators. And each and every one of them, I think, uh, ably demonstrated that they could speak well and, and, um, react on the hot spot on, in the hot seat and, and demonstrated themselves to be, you know, decent communicators. Which is the thing, you, you know, you look at back at Ban Ki moon 10 years ago, this would have been a very tough forum for him. He was not an effective community communicator. He sort of had grew into the job. But 10 years ago, like imagining Ban Ki-moon in the hot seat like this would have been really sort of almost excruciating to watch, I would imagine. But these 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 Eastern European candidates and and, and the non-Eastern European candidates uh, were all, I think, pretty, pretty good. Yeah. So, I mean, I, um, no, I come away, I come away from the process uh, unusually feeling a little more positive about UN diplomacy than, uh, than I did coming into it i I think that um it it has been a worthwhile exercise now of course there have been some exceptionally dull passages in in the various hearings and you're telling me man i watched them all yeah, you you've got been out there on the, the front same, line. You know, well, why the why questions. were there questions about sport? What was it? You know, a couple oh, of people kept on asking Monaco. questions about sport and development. I mean, there what, has what to be a reason that Monaco is so interested in sports and development. Always. And and you know, so some of the questions were the same. And to be honest, the Thai ambassador who represented the G seventy seven plus uh China, which is a group of developing countries, he always got the first question and always asked the exact same questions in the exact same order. And by the end, he looked bored. Um, so it did get sort of sort of tedious. I would say though, the one moment of potential political drama, and you had to like kind of know UN speak to understand that this was a potentially dramatic moment, uh, was during the Vesna Pusic hearing. She's a former Croatian foreign minister. And um Canada uh, like asked her a question about LGBT LGBT rights. And she said, you know, she she gave a I think a very thoughtful answer about why it's important to defend the rights of the most vulnerable, including LGBT people around the world. And then the next round of questioning, the Saudi ambassador um took exception to her answer, saying that these kinds of um cultural values don't translate across all countries and sort of took her to task for suggesting that LGBT rights are worthy of being upheld. Uh, but to her credit, uh, she, she held firm and she gave, I think, a pretty thoughtful response to him. Um, again, perhaps it was in politics, but using the example of, of women rights, of female rights and, and how women's rights have been, you know, progressively more mainstream precisely because they have been championed around the world. Uh, and I don't know if that answer is perhaps satisfactory because the Algerian representative, um, asked another version of the same question of like, don't you impose your kind of liberal values on us sort of thing. Uh, but it, but it was interesting to, to see that dynamic unfold. And that dynamic does exist at the UN where you have some countries that are, you know, culturally more liberal than others. And, and so there is that tension. Uh, but that tension was actually, you know, on, on display at one point during these hearings. And I think I'm right in saying that the Saudis sort of uh, asked another question of Helen Clark um, 
about whether freedom of conscience was part of the job description of the secretary general. So, you know, they they clearly are testing these largely, you know, liberal, um, uh, westernized candidates, even if some of them are from Eastern Europe, on on the cultural uh, topic. I, I was actually going to identify another question, um, which I thought was. Uh, more politically exciting than than the average, which was um, uh, in the second hearing on Tuesday, which was the hearing for Irina Bakova, the head of UNESCO, um, former Bulgarian foreign minister, who's widely been painted as uh, one of the candidates who is closest to Moscow and might well use her her good ties with with Russia um, to leverage uh, leverage her way to the secretary general's job. And right at the end of her hearing, the Ukrainians piped up and um, the Ukrainians basically uh, asked a question pushing her to state her commitment to Ukraine's sovereignty over Crimea. And um, that was a uh, a very smartly placed question um, because if she had if she had said that she wasn't fully committed to Ukraine's sovereignty over Crimea, she would have been dead to the Americans. And if she had said anything that offended the, the Russians, she would suddenly have lost her support base in Moscow. Uh, so that seemed like it would be a moment of, of great import. But Bakova, I think, managed to use the fact that the session had run out of time and she never actually answered the question. She didn't so answer the, the question. The, the it drama, was a landmine. drama passed. Yeah, no, Ukraine definitely laid a landmine and she just didn't answer the question. Um, so it doesn't seem that anyone was necessarily more or less likely to be Secretary General uh, finalist before or after uh, this, this exercise. I don't know. What do you think? I think that's true. I, I think that... A couple, a couple of candidates may have strengthened their position a bit. Uh, I think Guterres on the Tuesday gave a, a very lively performance that made a good impression. And I think that he was thought to be a bit more substantive than um, Luxich and, and Bukova, who'd gone before him. Um, I didn't see it, but I understand that Danilo Turk who is a former UN official and former president of Slovenia. Um, and a guest on this very podcast. And a guest on the, I, he, he, I think, did, did solid work on, on Wednesday. Um, Vuk Jeremic did something interesting, which people may only pick up on over the next few days, which was that he distributed a, a much more uh, comprehensive plan of action um, with over 50 policy commitments uh, than than any of the other candidates had put on the table. So maybe people will look at that and that will um, give him an advantage and spur more debates. So, yeah, various candidates, mm-hmm. I think, probably exceeded expectations. But nonetheless, no, no one has shot far ahead from yeah. the pack. And it's just sort of impossible, I think, to impose the sort of horse race dynamics that one applies to like U.S. presidential elections to this process, uh, just because at the end of the day, I mean, they still need to appeal to an audience of just five. Yes, I, I think that the question now is, are more people going to come in? And uh, a number of names are are still knocking about for additional 
uh, candidates who are likely to appear relatively soon. Uh, Kevin Rudd from Australia, um, perhaps Susanna Malcora, the Argentinian foreign minister who's also an ex-chief of staff at the UN. Um, possibly at least one more candidate from Eastern Europe. Uh, Eastern Europe, that's um, Miroslav Lajcak from Slovakia, uh, could could hop into the race. Uh, it will be interesting to see whether some of those guys come in quickly now, um, saying that having seen the the race so far, they feel they have something to add, or whether any of them are going to be deterred um, by the fact that. Uh, the existing candidates have all performed reasonably solidly. See, uh, I would think, and my I suspect, and here's here's a prediction I can make, that there will be a flood of new candidates for the simple fact that this exercise was a, a moment in which each of these individual candidates got to rise. Their, their profile sort of suddenly shot up in the eyes of the world. Like they were the focus, the attention of the entire world for two hours. And that has to be tempting for uh, individual politicians who think that they might even have a, a, a slimmest of outside chances of, of becoming secretary general. Yeah. And I, I wish I'd, um, uh, I, I used to speak a, a smattering of um, Serbo Croat and I, I wish I'd kept that up because it would be fascinating to see how um, a lot of the Balkan countries media are covering the respective uh, candidates performance because whatever the global response um to someone like Pusic uh the uh, you know this must just be uh the subject of huge headlines back home and uh, and so even if these candidates don't make it any further in the UN race it gives them a a huge huge boost to their credibility domestically and um it's worth remembering that uh some candidates come and go without making a huge impression and yet reappear uh, in other big international roles later on. I was just thinking two two candidates in 2006 who made no real impression against um, Ban Ki-moon uh, were Ashraf Ghani, who's now the president of Afghanistan, and um, Prince Zaid of Jordan, who is now the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. Uh, so a a tilt, a tilt, at being secretary general um, can actually be a good uh, a good thing to have on your CV, uh, even if your ultimate goal is to get a different job in the the global system or go home and be a national leader. Um, so, any final final parting thoughts? I have one, which is my favorite question of the day. Uh, and I mentioned earlier that the president of the General Assembly took questions from civil society, and to his great credit, he took um, at least three, two or three questions to each candidate from civil society, and they were submitted uh, via video. And so my favorite question of this entire process was put to Irina Bokova by a 12-year-old girl in England who asked her, even if you're not the next secretary general, what are you still going to do to make the world a better place? Um, her answer was, was good. It was just like, you know, I'm going to go back to UNESCO and advance like the soft power of the United Nations by promoting education and science and, and cultural understanding and all that. But I thought that was a great question. Yeah, I think, you know, as I, as I say, I think that overall I, I, I feel much more warmth to this process than I'd expected. And I, I do think that uh, everyone is rather impressed with the way that um, the president of the General Assembly, um, Mr. Likitoff from from Denmark has handled this. He's, uh, he's rather deftly managed the diplomacy and, as you say, found ways to, 
to bring in unexpected um, uh, elements like uh, like these uh, members of the general public speaking by video. So a big thumbs up to the process. Yeah. Uh, and he also let, let, let me yeah. let me let me sort of please then, do. Let me then puncture that balloon by saying that it has been widely noticed that the Russians and Chinese mm. have essentially not engaged. I should. And that's a very the, good point. Yeah. The Russians. The Russians. I don't think have asked any questions. Zero. Uh, none. And I think that tells you something about uh, the the sort of deep political game that's at work here, which is that Moscow and Beijing are tolerating this process, um, but they, uh, you know, they still feel that it would be much better and it will be much better to select the secretary general um, through classic um, backroom politics. Um, So sadly, uh, you know, sadly there is a sting in the tail of this otherwise quite nice story. Uh, well, Richard, thank you so much. And I'm glad you brought up the, the, the Russia point because that was, it was striking that Russia asked not a single question throughout this whole process. Although China, you know, uh, was part of the G77 questions. So they at least had a foot in the door. Russia, I mean, the Russian perm rep was, was, I don't know if it's actually the perm rep that was there, but there was someone seated at the Russian table according to the webcast I was watching, but, uh, they asked no questions. The Russians have said that, um, no, they hope to choose the candidate with the widest possible uh, support in the UN. But uh, I think in private, they, they've made it very clear that they think this this whole public game is um, is just a bit of an irritation. Um, <laughs> well, not an irritation to us, though. This is our no, well, it, it's, it's, This it's is great. Questionably, it's a gold mine for oh, for UN God. pundits. So oh, we my. at least must raise a glass to it. All right. Well, thank you so much, Richard. Okay. Thank you. Alrighty, thank you to Richard as always. Thank you all for listening. As I mentioned at the start, um, I have a few interviews lined up with Secretary General candidates. Now, for regular podcast listeners, I do the regular kind of Global Dispatches podcast interview with these folks. And if you're new, that means that I kind of ask them about their life, their career, the big events, ideas, and influences that shape their worldview from an early age. They tell stories from their childhood, from their early career. We have digressions about historical events, fun, lively conversation so check it out stay tuned go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to subscribe or get in touch with me and we'll see you soon bye